0: From KCUR 89.3, I'm Brian Ellison.
1: And from St. Louis Public Radio, I am Jason Rosenbaum.
0: And this is a special joint podcast of Statehouse Blend, Missouri.
1: And Politically Speaking.
0: So we are upstairs at the Missouri State Capitol on the fifth floor uh, today, earlier Eric Greitens was sworn in as Missouri's 56th governor.
1: And we thought it would be a good idea for these two mighty forces of Missouri political Very podcasting to join together to interview the leaders of the Missouri House. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum.
2: And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe.
3: I'm going to push back.
0: Uh, joining us are Representative Gail McCann Beatty, who is the House Minority Floor Leader. Uh, Representative Beatty, welcome back.
1: Thank you. And welcome to our sh- Politically Speaking for the First Time.
0: This is awesome. Thank you very much. And also,
1: Representative Kip
0: Kendrick, who's a Democrat from Columbia and the Minority Whip. And uh, it's nice to have you for the first time on State House Blend, Missouri.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's, I'm glad to be here. And welcome back to Politically Speaking for the second time. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Jason.
0: So uh, let's, let, let me – I'll start. Well, We haven't planned a, a detailed script here, as it's fairly obvious. So let me start by just asking each of you uh, your initial thoughts uh, on the governor's inaugural address, uh, Representative Beatty.
3: Well, um, we really didn't get to hear a whole lot, but some of – it seems his reoccurring theme is change. Um, and I think we've seen some of that with some of his uh, – new executive orders. As you know, ethics has been one of our priorities, and clearly he is making it his as well. Uh, So I am looking forward to trying to to work with him on some of these things and and see where that goes.
1: A big question that I've asked about this entire debate over ethics is whether the focus on paring down lobbyist gifts or making it harder for legislators to become um, lobbyists is really the right focus, because If people are going to make bad moral decisions, it doesn't seem like that has anything to do with with curbing lobbyist largesse. Do you feel like what uh, the governor said and what he wants and what Republican legislators are proposing, at least in the House, is going to be enough to change the culture here in Jefferson City?
3: Well, I think it's probably it's a small step toward doing that. Um, I kind of agree with you. I'm not sure that this really should be the biggest priority. Campaign finance limits are obviously, at least in my opinion, uh, a much greater uh, point that we need to deal with. And we did in some respects through Amendment 2. Um, However... There's no denying that the public sees this as a major problem.
0: I, I'm not forgetting uh, Kip Kendrick, who's here with us. But but when you say you dealt in part with it with Amendment 2, would you like to see further limitations on uh, on campaign contributions?
3: Well, one of the things that Amendment 2 does is it really kind of shifts the power over to the House and Senate campaign committees. And I am afraid that we are actually creating less transparency by going this route
0: rather than greater transparency because donations to those committees are not limited by the amendment
1: absolutely and also not limited are local and county committees do either of you foresee a scenario where somebody would open up say a committee for mayor or county commissioner use that as a conduit to raise millions of dollars and then especially if some of the aspects of amendment 2 get struck down basically render amendment 2 useless that way
3: I think uh, people are always going to find that loophole, and so we have to be very careful when how we how we script these things, and um, do what we can to um, curb that. Unfortunately, the public. Doesn't necessarily see those things and recognize that that's probably even more dangerous than what we had before.
1: Did I just give politicians around the state an idea of how to get around Amendment Two? Right. I think I just did. We'll that. call
0: that pulling a Rosenbaum. <laughs> to be <bomb>. fair, though, <laughs> I've been
1: I've been talking about this for a long time, and I'm not trying to convince people to get around Amendment Two. I'm just saying that in a, at a state where lieutenant governor candidates got million dollar donations, I don't see that as an unrealistic possibility, and. I know that they did that for a reason because they didn't want the amendment to be struck down on constitutional grounds, but it's a reality, and it's also going to make local races more expensive, especially in Kansas City,
3: Absolutely,
1: maybe Columbia. I don't know if someone would spend a million dollars to be mayor of Columbia.
2: I certainly wouldn't, but, you know.
0: Well, the way, there's nothing wrong with Columbia. But, mm-hmm. uh, but Kip Kendrick, uh, what was your impression of the inaugural address today?
2: Well, you know, I, I didn't hear anything in there that surprised me. A lot of the, the similar themes of what we heard during the campaign, um, ethics reform, change, uh, you know, making sure that Missouri um, – that there's justice in Missouri so you know I, I think he hit on some of the no- regular themes that he'd been hitting on throughout the campaign but you know tomorrow's uh, I guess today as of right now is a new day uh, we're gonna have to get around to governing and so it'll be it'll be an interesting session uh, to, to a lot of unknowns out there on on uh, with the new administration and uh, some knowns about uh, what's going to move but um but a lot of questions still remain. Now, one thing that I think
1: has become fait accompli after Greitens won the governorship is that Republicans in the legislature are gonna propose a whole bunch of things to curb organized labor, whether it be quote unquote right to work, which is shorthand for a policy that no longer would allow labor unions and employers to require uh, payment of dues as a condition of employment. It is, is a mouthful to say, but I think that I got that right as well as uh, barring automatic deductions of dues and maybe prevailing wage. From talking with Republican legislative leaders, it's not really a question of if those things are going to happen, but when. Um, And there's not really much of a pathway for for Democrats who oppose those things to stop them. So given that a whole new reality is about to come down for organized labor in this state, from, from talking with labor unions, are you getting a sense that they're kind of ready to reinvent themselves in this new world? are they going to try to put up one last-ditch effort to, to fight these things, even though they probably know what the outcome is?
3: My guess is probably they're going to put a, up that one last-ditch effort. I think we'll see some kind of petition process going on to take the vote to the people, which is what I said it should be done anyway. Um, this is a huge change for our state, and my concern is that we are not pushing right to work because... We believe that it is right for the people, but we're pushing right to work because it's an agenda for a couple of very powerful um, billionaires. And uh, someone asked me earlier today, "Well, why do you feel that way?" And I, my response was simply, "Follow the money."
0: Mm. I mean, do you is it as is it as simple as that? Though, I mean, I, clearly there are there are right to work. There are twenty is it twenty seven other right to work states I mean this is there's a nationwide agenda of a, of a, of a movement that doesn't uh, that wants to uh, to take that position and labor
1: union spent millions of dollars to try to prevent this right. too. absolutely so I want to make that clear but continue yeah. no
0: but but so I guess my question is uh, isn't this a there's a broader fight here right this is this is not just about one particular piece of legislation right
3: which is which is why my argument is we should take it to the people um, and let them tell us uh, do they want this to be a right to work state?
1: I think one of the challenges of getting that on the ballot is that while organized labor is strong in Kansas City and St. Louis, Mm -hmm. where I think there are combined two or three congressional districts, it has really lost its luster in other parts of the state where you need those signatures. There's not a lot of union members in southern Missouri or northeast Missouri anymore. So is that going to be a structural barrier to getting that on the ballot that you just may not find a lot of people interested in stopping right to work, in places where you need those signatures?
3: Um, I think without a question, it, it is an uphill battle. Um, but I think it's probably a battle that labor is willing to
0: take on. So I, I think there's a, there's a broader question here than just about labor. It's sort of about every issue where... Republicans uh, dominate. And of course, they've dominated before. They've had veto-proof majorities, but now they're operating with a certain confidence, knowing that they don't have a governor's veto pen uh, to, to help, uh, to, to that they will have to override. I guess my question, you're you're the Democratic whip, uh, Representative Kendrick. Uh, you have to count all these votes. Uh, what does is, what is collaboration even look like? Do you sense, especially on the House side, any motivation to collaborate any way? Is there any way that Democrats can can have an impact on legislation, or is it going to be one unsuccessful vote for you after
2: another? <laughs> that's a, a million-dollar question right now, right? right. Not, to, no. not to put too fine a point on No, it. Yeah. no, thank you. So I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this uh, every evening, right? So, um, you know, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I think it's going to be challenging to figure out where our leverage is at times, and and there are going to be clear issues where uh, where we just don't agree. Right to work, um, there's going to be some some legal reforms, some education reforms to vouchers potentially that where we just fundamentally disagree on on what the policy should be and uh, there's a very good possibility on some of these major policy shifts that we're just not going to have the votes uh, to be able to stop it. But that being said, um, there there are a lot of issues that move forward here in the state that aren't necessarily partisan. I do think that we're going to have uh, we're going to have leverage. It's just a a matter of uh, figuring out where it is and and what's appropriate for us to um, to be able to uh, to compromise and cooperate on. Can
0: you any examples? Are there issues where you think you might have leverage or where you think you could have an impact?
2: Well, you know, I I think there's going to be a lot of movement this year on uh, ways to uh, to shore up the budget. We're looking at um, we're looking at 200 million dollars in withholds by Governor uh, Governor Nixon. Uh, potential for another $200 million in withhold coming this next week uh, from from Governor Greitens. Uh, FY18, the budget's looking like it's going to be an absolute mess. Uh, so there's going to be, I think, a, a real opportunity for us to take a look at uh, not only tax credits, but maybe also uh, taking a look at... Uh, at uh, some other programs out there that are these necessary to continue funding or do we need to to make some uh, cuts in order to fund other priorities in the state
1: now representative kendrick the last time you were on politically speaking we talked extensively about um the democratic misfortunes in a place that's very close to your heart northeast missouri um before before that was before this election cycle when Someone like Donald Trump was getting 70 and 80 percent of the vote in counties that used to be Democratic, like five and 10 years ago. So the reason I'm asking this question, without rehashing the election, which I, I kind of am, how are the Democrats going to get out of the super minority if they're not competing and not not doing well at all in places that they were doing fine five and 10 years ago? And how does it? How do how do you prepare to kind of get out of this abyss? Because if you don't get out of the super minority, you're not going to be able to effectuate much policy over the next five to ten years.
2: Correct. <laughs> there's no, there's no one single answer, right? I mean, it's going to take. Uh it's going to take a lot of different levers being pulled uh, at the same time. We, we have to make sure that we have candidates uh, in Northeast Missouri and Southeast Missouri, and we have to field candidates where we haven't been fielding candidates. We have to make sure that there is unified message, not only uh, a message of opposition at times and, and what uh, what we feel that the, the Republicans have done to uh, to worsen the situation for the state, but we also need a, a clear message on what we plan to do to move this state forward. And, and I don't, and I may that's lacking at time. But we also when we have to have a message about what it's going to take uh, to make uh, make Missouri better for everyone
1: is one of the challenges when you're doing battle legislatively is you're facing off against people like Todd Richardson or Elijah Har who are very skilled both from a public policy standpoint and from a political standpoint. Does that make your job more difficult when we're just talking about the, the legislative give and take that your Republican
2: counterparts are not pushovers basically? <laughs> that is very true. They're not. You know, I have a, I have a good relationship with the speaker. He's very talented. He always says he's, uh, he's, he's a very smooth guy um, and, and fair times. But, you know, I mean, I, the Republicans in the House, House leadership, Senate leadership, and, and the Republican governor, they're going to have to lead. Uh, they're going to have to figure out. Uh, how to get the FY eighteen budget to work? They're going to have to do that uh, without uh, raising taxes. I mean, there, there's not going to be an appetite to raise taxes. They're going to make some major cuts uh, to public higher education. They're going to make some major cuts potentially to public safety, maybe to transportation, which can't really take any more cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's gotten to the point where uh, you know one. Silver lining of having Republican governors, they're going to have to govern now. And, and I expect there will be a, a push for special interest tax cuts, continued tax cuts. But at the same time, I hope there's a pushback from the Greitens administration that says, we just cannot continue to do this.
0: So let me ask another uh, political question. Another place where there's a pretty significant divide on a partisan level, is between urban and rural settings in Missouri. If we look at the map, there's a blue bubble around St. Louis, there's a blue bubble around Kansas City, and there's a little blue bubble where you represent there. Not Adams, as blue Kim as it Kendrick. used to be. And even that one's not as blue as it used to be. But but uh, we're looking at a vast sea of red from pretty much the rest of the state. Um, we're talking about trying to cultivate future candidates, uh, future uh, potential leadership for Democrats in Missouri, is there any kind of candidate who can appeal outside of those blue bubbles? And I, I ask that after an election where we saw Chris Coster defeated by six points and um, uh, attorney general candidate defeated by 11 points. Uh, you know, we, we're not – no one was really close. Um, how do you start building back, and is that rural-urban divide part of the problem, Representative Bayer? Well, the,
3: the rural-urban divide is, is absolutely there, and I, I think we have to do – Um, a better job with our messaging and reaching out to rural Democrats, because there are rural Democrats. I think part of the challenge we had, too, is perhaps people were a little complacent um, in this election, thinking um, it was a give uh, that Chris Coster was going to win. Um, And in some some minds, there was a give that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win. And no one ever dreamed that we would be talking President Donald Trump. I think it is incumbent upon us to re-energize our Democratic base. Um, not going to be easy, but something that we're absolutely going to have to do.
0: And is there a Democratic message that appeals to the the rural part of the state that you can think of?
3: I, th- I think we're still talking the same family values that we always have, living wages, um, quality education. When we look at our rural communities, those high schools are the center of those communities, so they are very much wanting a quality public education. Um, when we talk about bringing jobs into our state, we have to be providing a, a quality workforce. What our message is has to change, but how we present it has to change.
1: I know we just got over one election, but I I know that uh, one of your former colleagues, uh, former Representative Stephen Weber, is now the chairman of the Missouri Democratic Party. I've known Stephen even before he was in elected office. Hmm. He was what I would consider a gold star candidate for the state Senate who lost, probably because of the Red Way, but also because Caleb Rowden ran an excellent campaign himself. But my feeling is he has he has a lot of work to do, but he also has the possibility of being a statewide candidate in four years. As somebody who served with them, I, I guess we're getting speculation going on this show <laughs> That's first. That's what we do. It's a podcast. Would he be the type of leader that you think you could rally around in four years, maybe for governor or some of the other down ballot offices?
2: You know, I I have regular conversations with uh, with Stephen. And right now he's solely focused on on being executive director of Missouri Democratic Party. I think he's so focused right now on doing what's right uh, to get the Democratic Party back around. You know, and he's such he's got such a large job in front of him that uh, that I don't even want to speculate. Okay,
0: Well, then, then let me ask you to speculate a little further, are there other candidates? You don't have to have inside knowledge, but just from things that you, as you look yeah, out at the field, who would you like that's, to see? That's the reason I
1: brought that up, because your bench seems pretty thin right, right. now, and, and you, you and need you're, somebody to field these offices. And frankly,
0: the two of you are near the top of the bench <laughs> as legislative leaders when you don't have any statewide offices except auditors. So so who would you like to see in uh, cult, in the pipeline to be Democratic candidates?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I think that I believe... Skirt your question a little bit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize. We, we I'll be completely. Imagine honest. that. <laughs> right. but uh, but but I think one thing that this election has done is wo- uh, it has woken Democrats up uh, nationally and in the state. It, it, we can't be complacent. Uh, I do believe that we're going to see uh, some democratic, um, you know, values or. or it, be undone. Uh, some 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 things that we've really been standing for uh, to be to be threatened, and I think people are going to kind of wake up more so than they have been in the in the recent past, and we're going to see people start stepping up and saying, you know, maybe it's my turn. Maybe I need to run for the House. Maybe I need to run for the Senate. Maybe I need to look at a statewide elected uh, seat if, if, you know, if I'm in a position to do it. So I uh, I think people around the state are going to start stepping forward in a way maybe that hasn't happened over the last two to four years.
0: Okay, I'm going to give uh, Gail McCann Beatty an equal chance to skirt my question. Uh, (laughs) Is there anyone that you can think of that you'd like to see as a candidate for statewide office for the Democrats?
3: I don't know. You know, I'm kind of in the same boat as as Kip in this that I don't know. It's a very small group that is here in the Capitol. And we bounce between, you know, the Senate and the House. But really, I think our stars, we don't know who they're going to be just yet. Um, But we will be actively out there recruiting. So if there is someone out there who is even remotely thinking about it,
0: uh, we're looking for you.
1: There's lots of Do Democrats <laughs> in St. Louis, let me tell you. Is there, is there a- an
0: underwriting fee for that little uh, commercial <laughs> that uh, we just allowed on uh, our podcast?
1: That, that would probably mean that we can afford our theme music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hey, I want
0: to thank both of you on a busy day uh, after the inauguration yes, uh, thank for you coming up much. and talking with us. Uh, Representative Gail McCann Beatty, the House Minority Leader, and Representative Kip Kendrick, the House Minority Whip. Thanks to both of you. Thank you
2: for having us. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: And we're back with our joint podcast between State House Blend, Missouri, from KCUR.
1: And Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio.
0: And we're now joined by the Speaker of the Missouri House, Todd Richardson. Speaker Richardson, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me today.
0: Let's start with uh, what's the obvious question on everyone's mind. You just were outside for uh, Missouri Governor Eric Greitens' inauguration. What would you think of his address?
4: Yeah, it's an exciting day. I think it's uh, it's really fun for us to, to be able to welcome in what's, I think, going to be truly a new era in in Missouri state government. And for those uh, of us old timers like me, I can call myself an old timer since I'm in my final term now, Uh, (laughs) having been here six years, it's going to be really exciting to see some of the things that we've worked on over that period of time and have a partner in the governor's office to work with us.
0: You know, I think a lot of folks have have said over the course of the last uh, couple weeks when there's been a lot of talk about the change and the excitement. Um, you know, there are a couple issues that Governor Nixon vetoed, but the Republicans have had a veto proof majority yeah. for for several years now. What do you feel like has really changed?
4: Well, I think ha- having that willing partner in the executive is just there's no way unless you've worked in this building to describe what the impact is. And, you know, it's not just the issues that the governor vetoes. It's it's the entire topic of conversation often gets framed uh, by what kinds of issues uh, the governor's willing to work with you on and, and what's not.
1: Now, one of the elephants in the room here, and I guess since we're interviewing a Republican, I can use that horrible metaphor, is that, um, you know, during the primary and even after the primary, there were a lot of lo- legislators from your party that, that weren't really sold on Greitens. Even after he beat the three other opponents, they were kind of miffed about this this refrain that Jefferson City's corrupt.
0: Corrupt career politicians. And that
1: kind of put Republican leaders in a net as well. But I've been talking with a lot of Republicans, and they, they like what Governor Greitens has done with staffing. They like how he's being more collaborative with the legislature. Is that kind of a sign that some of the wariness that was there post and pre-primary is is maybe fading away? Or is some of that rhetoric still yeah. ha- still has hard feelings? Oh, basically? I,
4: I, I certainly think some of that's fading away. And I think, honestly, I think a little bit of some of it was overblown to begin with. You know, everybody per, from the House perspective, everybody in the Missouri House, the longest anyone has served would be Representative Engler. Um, and, and he's certainly been here uh what 12 years I was going to say 100 years but not it has wanted been, to be it, as insulting as possible it, to it hasn't been that long <laughs> but for the most part we don't have any other than representative England we don't have any house members who have been here longer than six years and every single person myself included we ran for office because we wanted to see things change and Governor Greitens ran essentially on that same platform, that platform of changing the way things are done in Jefferson City and changing the policies that govern the state. So I think as people have gotten past, um, you know, sort sort of the, uh, the harsh nature of, of that
1: campaign, they're finding that there's a lot of common ground with the governor. One thing that I've heard from some of your Republican colleagues, including uh, State Representative Kevin Engler, who was around during the yep. Matt Blunt administration, is now that there is a Republican governor and a Republican legislature and with such robust numbers, the Republicans can't really blame Democrats no, if things go wrong. Sure. So that's kind of a downside. If the state takes a turn for the worse, it might be bad news for the GOP. How does that feeling come into play as you're, you're moving forward on this agenda?
4: Well, there, there's no question. When you have uh, when you have both super majorities in the House, super majorities in the Senate, and the governor's office, there's an increased uh, responsibility on us to govern. And I think um, the way that uh, we intend to do it is by following through on the things that we told voters as a party we were going to work on in the campaign. And I think if we'll keep focused on that, um, the state will be taken in a better direction. And I think um, people will see the results of of that uh, legislation.
0: You know, one of the things that 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 theme of responsibility is something you mentioned in your opening address last week. And uh, I think you said with greater power comes greater responsibility right. isn't
1: that a
4: quote from spider-man
0: uh, yes I believe that, isn't See, that I didn't even quote? know that
4: that was one of the somebody pointed that out to me and I had no idea so
0: spider-man may not have been the first actually but, but we'll look that up uh, we'll, yeah. we'll tweet about that yeah but
4: uh, I think spider-man's a good person to be quoting I mean yeah, I
0: would agree yeah you could do worse I yeah think, yeah the, you, seem, you went on from there to talk about uh, that responsibility includes hearing the voices of all Missourians, sure. including those that all of you represent. And I think you were talking to the Democrats there yeah. uh, saying uh, you're working to, to incorporate all of those voices. In as, in as practical a terms as as you can, what does that look like? What, what does collaboration or working together or incorporating all those voices look like at a, at a time when you don't really have to work with them because of the right. numbers you have?
4: Well, I had the opportunity to be in this building uh, way, way back when, when the partisanship was the exact opposite. My father served in this building from 90 to 02, and I can remember as a teenager uh, seeing how a super minority of Republicans was treated by a super majority of Democrats. And I didn't think it was right the way they were treated at the time. And So it's, that's an experience that I've always been mindful of as I've been the speaker. We're, we're going to move the policy agenda that we want to move as a caucus, Um, But that doesn't mean uh, that we have to be disrespectful of the minority or or to shut them out of the debate. And beyond that, there are a whole host of issues uh, which aren't particularly partisan. Um, Workforce development is one that comes to mind almost immediately. It's a critical economic development challenge for this state, and it really doesn't have anything to do with with partisanship. So we're going to look for and identify the kinds of issues where we can work across the aisle. Um, But even on the the deep contentious issues where there are true philosophical uh, divides, uh, we're we're going to be mindful and respectful of, of the voices that disagree with us.
1: One issue that I know Democrats have been interested in, and we talked about this on a previous show, is a paid parental leave. Yeah. And um, I, I saw that Representative Jay Barnes had introduced a bill for state workers, and you had said before that you're going to use this as a springboard to broader. I, I, I want to ask a more broad question because I've noticed that people in both parties, both male and female, a lot mm-hmm. of them are, are between our age, 30 and yeah. 40, raising young kids, I'm wondering if um, you've heard from a lot of your colleagues that, you know, the lack of paid family leave is, is a practical problem for us as we serve in the legislature for either us or our spouses, and that maybe is providing some motivation to get this done.
4: Yeah, I, I think it certainly is. And I think, you know, we do have a younger legislature than we've had before. I, I, somebody needs to count up the number of, uh, of children under the age of 14 that are associated with a member of the legislature, yeah. because it's a it's a large number right now.
1: It's, it's but, enormous at this point.
4: I, I do. If you take just the, the Representative Vescovo and Representative Barnes' clans alone, you've yeah. got a, <laughs> a, a, a big number there. But I do think it's informing uh, the the conversation some. and I think it's also this has also been a conversation that's been ongoing nationally for some time.
0: So from uh, something that might have some bipartisan traction to something that doesn't have any bipartisan traction at all, uh, right to work is... Well, that's uh,
4: not true. I mean, but but right to work's been passed in the Missouri House with both Democrats and Republicans voting for like
1: it. Like one or two Democrats, yeah. but, but continue.
0: Fair, fair enough. <laughs> uh, and and that, is, that is often the case in the Missouri legislature, sure. right? There's not necessarily strict party line votes on very many things. But but generally speaking, uh, Democrats have opposed uh, right to work and, of course, only isn't law now because of Governor Jay Nixon's right. veto pen. and. Uh, By all accounts, it seems headed for passage. On what kind of schedule do you see that happening?
4: Well, I think it's something uh, we're going to move, as I've said, very early in session. Uh, it's going The hearing on that bill is going to have hearing Tuesday uh, of this week, the day after the inauguration. Um, and so I anticipate it will move uh, from there very quickly to the floor.
0: Even more quickly, this morning, uh, the uh, House General Laws Committee uh, held a hearing on one of the ethics reform proposals that's out there. Uh, and then on 11-to-1 the vote, passed it on. That's the ban on gifts from lobbyists. Uh, I've heard people saying that this might pass the House as early as this week. Is that your uh, your hope?
4: Yeah, my hope is that we can get it to the floor uh, this week and begin debate on it. I said at the beginning, at the, excuse me, at the end of last session that it was going to be the first bill uh, that was would leave the House. It will be the first bill that leaves the House, and it's really something that I consider sort of unfinished business from last year. So my hope is that we can get it through the process uh, quickly, and then we'll move on to the other substantive priorities we've got.
1: I know this is a question I've been asking for well over a year, but I'll ask it again since, since lobbyist gifts and the revolver doors on on top of mind. Do you really feel that these issues are going to change the culture in Jefferson City when a lot of the reasons we're talking about ethics come down to bad personal decisions and and things that may not be able to be legislated?
4: Well, I don't think that's the only reason we're talking about these policies. Frankly, we were talking about these before some of the more high profile personal instances that we had over the last couple of years but i do think the combination of things that we're trying to do to improve overall the culture here in jeff city uh will improve the environment here and beyond that i think it's just the right thing to do um and so we're going to keep moving forward on it my hope is that that it improves the the culture here in in jeff city and and i think over time it will
0: Another of those ethics proposals is uh, from Governor Greitens, a revolving door ban. Uh, one for one, a year in the House yes. means a year uh, not serving as a lobbyist. Uh, we've already heard a fair number of senators saying they think that's DOA on, on the Senate side. Um, is it going to get uh, get hearings on the House side? Are we going to see action on that, Bill?
4: Well, the House passed the, the revolving door ban we have in place now last year. We actually were in favor of, of a longer ban. So we'll work with the governor to see uh, where... We can get that that
1: policy. I have a curveball question to ask. Right, great, um, which is, I guess, my specialty. Now I that love there, now that there is a Republican governor and there's all these statewide office holders, and there are copious amounts of positions for departing legislators, is it possible we may see a reduction of of Republicans who are termed out of the legislature who may want to go into lobbying and they may t- try to find a position within state government instead? And this problem may just kind of sort itself out over the next four to eight years.
4: Well, I, I do think it's, it's possible. And I think, you know, e- even though I, the six-month ban was not as long a ban as I would have liked to have passed last year, I think that in and of itself um, changes some of that the dynamic. When people are forced to sit out for a period of time um, and, and spend a little lo- longer in the recovering politician space, um, they tend to find other opportunities and move on. So, But I do think there will be opportunities in, in the administration and in the other statewide offices for good public servants to continue that work. Like Caleb Jones, for like example. Like Caleb Jones.
0: Jumping back to some of those issues that may have uh, certainly some bipartisan interest, uh, yeah. if not always agreement, uh, transportation and infrastructure needs are something that uh, Kansas City uh, politicians talk a lot about. Sure. Uh, but haven't haven't felt like they've seen a lot of action on over the last couple of sessions of the general Assembly uh, do you see that moving forward in this session
4: yeah look I think transportation is critically important for the state overall and I think figuring out where we're going to go in terms of funding our transportation networks critical
0: what, what what's your idea about that would you would you see some sources of increased revenue for transportation that are that are obvious to you
4: I, I think what we need to do first is we need to start with breaking this challenge down into manageable chunks and you know we, we've looked at transportation for so long as, as this massive problem and the the reality is we don't have a solution there is no solution for a massive problem i-70 alone is a three billion dollar project there's not a single uh, revenue solution that anybody's proposed that's a three billion dollar solution so i think we ought to start by trying to find some general revenue sources to continue to fund uh, transportation and uh from there, we need to come up with a plan to fund the interstates.
0: But nothing that would involve tax
1: increases, I'm, I'm guessing.
4: I don't, I don't see any support for that in the legislature in the short term.
1: Uh, yep. One of the other things that I think at least an advisor for Governor Greitens has talked about is paring down historic and low-income tax yep. credits. That, that's always a really controversial issue, but this is coming at a time when the state's budget is going through a lot of problems, and we have these two tax credits that end up taking a lot of money out of the state's coffers. Sure. So I'm, I'm curious if, if there's going to be a more successful effort to, to deal with those tax credits or, or lower the caps on them than, say the disastrous 2011 special session, which I, know, I see you're smirking yeah. about. I know well, you probably don't remember it as fondly as I do. I, yes.
4: Well, you referred to it as disastrous, so I don't know if I could remember any less fondly than that. But uh, I, I was smirky because I actually saw one of one of your your journalistic colleagues from Kansas City in the hallway just a few minutes ago, and we were reliving the, the story of the 2011 special session. It,
1: it, is, it is hard to forget, but continue, yes. sir. Uh, mm-hmm.
4: But I, I, th- I, I do think that there will be an appetite for tax credit reform, Across the board. And I think there's an appetite for, for a broader look at what the state's tax structure should be. Um, and, and I'm very hopeful that there'll be progress on that. Uh, in my mind, the, the way to, and it really is born out of that 2011 experience, um, what we ought to do in, in terms of trying to reform tax credit is not always look for. Uh, the big home run uh, solution, the grand bargain, because when you do that, and we saw this on ethics reform for years and years and years, this is the reason why we broke them up into single subject bills. Um, when you take these issues in smaller chunks, you, you ha- tend to have a better opportunity for success. But there's
1: going to be a lot of political pushback. For example, sure. if you lower the cap on low income housing tax credits, it's not only the developers and the people that that. Profit from those. Sure. It's going to be advocates of low-income housing, which right. is a really important aspect of not only urban Missouri but rural Missouri no, as well. So, no how do you strike that balance?
4: Well, that's what the legislative process is going to be about, and <laughs> and it's uh, it's it's not easy. And you've been around this building long, long enough to see Too kind long. of <laughs> <laughs> to see to see how difficult some of those challenges are. But look, that's why we we create the kind of process where we can have fair and open dialogue. And I think if we we'll put um, the right people. Um, working on this problem will come up with, with where that balance is.
1: I guess I just have to ask this question, and maybe it's a self-serving one, and it's to somebody who's not uh, sh- sharing my faith, but we did pass a historical symbolic milestone today. There's never been a Jewish person ever yeah. elected governor before, and especially after 2015, when as a Missouri political community, we're dealing this wrenching conversation about whether there's anti-Semitism in Missouri politics. It seems that Eric Greitens election, where he carried most of rural Missouri. And also, I have to just point this out, Jason Kander almost unseating a U.S. senator is a big right. counterpoint to that. As a as somebody from rural Missouri and as a leader of the Republican Party, what kind of message do you think it sends that Missouri elected its first and inaugurated its first Jewish governor and he happens to be a Republican?
4: Yeah, I think it sends a powerful message and a powerful, po- powerfully positive message um that that's not something that's going to hold a candidate back in this state we we are a state of of deep faith and and we have strong faith communities across the state and i know that faith is something that informs governor-elect gritens as it does me and and our faith may not be identical um, but i think his election Um, demonstrates that 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 is not the kind of issue that represents a a barrier to elected office in Missouri, and I think uh, that's an extraordinarily positive thing.
0: So we move toward wrapping up this conversation. Yeah. I, as you look back on the festivities of the day, and I know they aren't over yet—the uh, inaugural ball. I, I know we we are keeping you from getting your black tie, that, and that's uh, quite all right. <laughs> give us give it a few more minutes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as you think back uh, on the inaugural ceremony and on uh, Governor Greitens' address, what will stick with you from this day? What what s- will speak to you as this session moves forward?
4: I, I think what I'll remember about today is I think. And, and I hope it's something that Missourians remember too, that th- this is the point at which we began a dramatic uh, turnaround for our state and moved the state uh, to a place where we've got a strong, vibrant, dynamic economy that's uh, allowing the kinds of upward mobility that we wanna see here. And so I hope people look back uh, you know, by the end of the year and the next year and they see today as a starting point for that transition.
0: All right, Are we, any other questions here, Jason?
1: I have no other questions.
0: Well then, uh, I am pleased. I, I know you've been on Politically Speaking yeah. before, but this is your first time with us on Statehouse House Blend. I'm,
4: I'm glad to do it. We'll, we'll not make it the last.
0: Well, I hope not, and uh, and I hope that what I'm about to ask you doesn't make it the last. This is uh, it is part of our tradition that we ask our guest to choose the music that we will close the show with. And uh, it's
1: not a tradition on Politically Speaking. I've chosen the music every time, and every time he's on the show, I choose Neutral Milk Hotel. But continue, Brian. <laughs> uh, well, and so that you know,
0: that's an option. You can go that way if you choose. But uh, but the ball. All is in your court, Speaker Richardson.
4: All right. How about I I will give you all the choice of any Garth Brooks song you choose. Heading down to uh, my former home in Memphis on uh, on February the third to see Garth live in concert. Uh, Very excited about that. So I'll I'll let you fill it in with whatever Garth Brooks song you'd like.
1: What can it be from the Chris Gaines era?
4: No, no Chris Gaines era. It's got it's got to be
1: true true Garth Brooks.
0: I'm looking at my, my colleague, Jason Rosenbaum, because I, of course, can't think of a single Garth Brooks song, Would it be but, uh,
1: insulting if we did Friends in Low Places? I, you know, that's the one
0: we sing at Royals games uh, yeah, with
4: Garth that, I think that would be perfectly appropriate, both for the speaker from Poplar Bluff and because of the Kansas City connection. How about that?
0: Friends in Low Places it is. Uh, House Speaker Todd Richardson of Poplar Bluff, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks to my good friend and colleague, Jason Rosenbaum.
1: Thank you for having me as well.
0: It was a pleasure to bring you this joint podcast of Politically Speaking
1: and Statehouse House Blunt.
0: Uh, our producer today has been Matt Hodap. See you on the radio.